It must have been 2016, late October, those final days before fall break when teachers want to go bobbing for apples in a vat of coffee. My desk was cluttered with ungraded papers, sandwich crumbs, and broken dreams. I'd been napping on the dirty couch in the teacher's lounge when the obnoxiously loud bell brought me to my senses. All right, where am I? What class period is it? Where in the hell is my shoe? I leapt off the couch and into action, recovering my missing heel from a stained couch cushion. Seventh period, psychology. My 11th and 12th graders filtered into my room sluggishly. This was my favorite class to teach, but also the hardest. I was teaching about brains at the end of the day when my own was slipping into delirium. I taught about Phineas Gage, the infamous rail worker from the 1800s, who ended up becoming the neighborhood weirdo after a rail went through his frontal lobe, altering his personality forever. I taught about memories and how they can't be trusted. I taught about happiness, love, dreams, perception, IQ, and diseases like obsessive-compulsive disorder. And one day, we spent an entire day watching Goodwill Hunting. My lessons tended to be overly passionate and a little disorganized. Picture me running around a tiny classroom of high schoolers, yelling exciting brain facts, but then forgetting what the point of the lesson was. But occasionally, I had some really nice teachable moments. And some of those moments came from a very special book I'd found at a bookstore one day. After asking the librarian, do you have any brain books? What was that brain book, you ask? And did my future include talking to the author himself? You're about to find out. Because you're listening to Mimi and the Brain. Oh, window, found it, crawling in. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? Abby, someone. Abby, someone. Abby, who? Abby, normal. Tell us about yourself. A tiny clump of cells in my cerebellum had ruptured. That doesn't make sense. What? Yeah, I know. Nothing is real. (laughs) This is Westworld. We're all robots. Great. Today's topic brings us into the world of brain injuries, big, small, and very obscure. From incredible stories of human resilience to unfortunate joustic matches and mad scientists, we'll be uncovering all the ways you're just lucky you live in the 21st century. Brain injuries have baffled us since the beginning of time. It wasn't until recently that we could even see what was going on in there. With the rise of medical technology and scientific discovery, we've come a long way since pouring scalding hot oil on ourselves to seal wounds. It turns out brain injuries are pretty nuanced, and so is this conversation. We're going to talk about blind globetrotters, dead presidents, sleep paralysis, and obviously, how to trick your brain into thinking you still have an arm with a mirror. Phineas Gage may have been a famous case of brain damage, but chances are you haven't even heard the half of it yet. Strap in for an unlikely history lesson in all things brainy. Are you trying to get crazy with this scene? Don't you know I'm local? (laughs) 
Today's guest is a household name in science publishing and makes a regular appearance on my bookshelf. Today we have four-time best-selling author Sam Keen, author of The Disappearing Spoon, The Violinist Thumb, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, and Caesar's Last Breath. Sam is on the forefront of science storytelling. From the periodic table to inside the human brain, he explores the intimate details of science across space and time. He has appeared on NPR's Radio Lab, All Things Considered, was awarded Penn's Literary Science Writing Award, and is surprisingly responsive to cold emails from unknown podcast producers in New York City. Today we sat down via phone call to chat about famous injuries of history, how brains are like tree branches, and why his book ended up on my desk as a psychology textbook for my high school students. We're so stoked to talk to you today. So you're quite the author, if I ever saw one. The Disappearing Spoon in 2010, The Violinist Thumb 2013, Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons 2015, Caesar's Last Breath 2017. They're all bestsellers. Did you always know you wanted to be like this literary rock star? You know, what led you to this career and ultimately, like, writing the tale of dueling neurosurgeons, you know, the encyclopedia of awesome for brain injuries. You know, what's led you to this point today? Well, I was always wanted to be in the sciences some way, and I thought I was going to be a scientist for a very long time. Uh, but eventually realized that, you know, sort of temperamentally, I wasn't really happy working in labs, being a scientist. Uh, and it always had an interest in writing on some level. It never really occurred to me to write about science until I was about halfway through college or so when I tried to pick that up a little bit. And it turned out to be a really nice way to sort of blend the two interests in writing and being involved with science, but without having to you know, be in the lab all day, without having to specialize the way you have to do in the sciences. And my first book was on the periodic table. So that sort of was similar to my interest in physics. And then I wrote a book about genetics. And then the neuroscience book was my third book. And that was a bit of a departure for me because I hadn't really taken any uh, neuroscience classes. I didn't have any sort of, you know, uh, specialty knowledge of the brain or anything. Already I'm inspired. Science can feel very inaccessible and hard to break into. But guess what? Sam says everyone can be a scientist or a storyteller. I just kept coming across various stories of people who were getting injured in various ways, and their behaviors would change in these very specific but very revealing ways. And I felt like I was learning a lot about how the brain worked based on these really incredible stories of people's injuries. And I just thought, you know, you could probably put together a whole book just based on different stories of what we learn when the brain gets injured or something happens to it and parts of it go offline or it changes function in some way. It's really a very revealing way to understand how the brain works because you're dealing with uh, a lot of people's very personal uh, emotions, their lives, things like memories, language, very personal, important parts of their, their being in their lives. Well, that's just amazing that you'd never like done the neuroscience piece, because you definitely wouldn't know that from your writing. Oh, well, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> uh, definitely a lot of research went into this book, which is um, really exciting. So um, first, I'm going to ask you some questions. And congratulations, by the way, on writing four books. That's like, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, first, I'm going to ask you some questions like about the brain. 
And then later on in the show, we'll kind of get into some of those stories that you mentioned, um, the ones that I thought uh, were just super fascinating. So uh, sleep paralysis, you have it, right? I do, yes. Yeah, you talk about it in the book. Uh, it's terrifying. Uh, can you explain what exactly is happening in the brain here with sleep paralysis and like when you first maybe experienced this and what it was like? Yeah, so the easiest way to describe it, I think, is most people know what sleepwalking is. So your body is awake, but your mind is still dreaming or still asleep. Sleep paralysis is the opposite in that your mind wakes up, but your body is still asleep. So when we dream, our brains send uh, signals basically down to the rest of our body to temporarily paralyzes it so that you know if we have a nightmare about a werewolf or something we're not jumping up and running around while we're asleep in people who are sleepwalking those signals don't get to the body to shut it off all the time to temporarily uh, paralyze it when sam told me about this i couldn't help but think of one of my favorite comedians good old mike Birbiglia. Notoriously, I was thinking, maybe. I have a story where I, I fell asleep watching the movie Fight Club, mm -hmm. and I had a dream. A lot of people did. Yeah, <laughs> is that common? Yeah, and I and I had a dream that, <laughs> that, I, that, that I, my hand was being held down by Brad Pitt, and he was going to pour acid on my hand. I jumped out of my bed, and I sprinted out of my apartment, and I threw a chest of drawers in my wake, like in an action film, because I knew that Brad Pitt is very cunning. And I sprinted down the hall, and, and my girlfriend runs out, and she goes, you're dreaming. And I was like, Brad Pitt! Ah, acid! Oh, no! Sam says sleep paralysis is a little different. In sleep paralysis, the mind wakes up, but the spigot, so to speak, on those signals doesn't get turned off. So the body remains paralyzed. And it's terrifying because it really feels like you are paralyzed. You can't move at all. It's what like being a statue would be like, where you're just trapped inside this thing and you feel like you can't move. Especially for me, mm. my breathing feels like it's very shallow. It's hard to get my breath, sort of the panicky feeling that you get. And I experienced it probably when I was, you know, nine or 10 or something like that for the first time. I don't remember exactly. And it took me a long time to realize that this was something um, sort of that was happening on a regular basis. It wasn't just like one bad nightmare or something like that, but to kind of piece it together. And it's something that I just have to kind of deal with now. I have to be careful what posture I fall asleep in or you know, things like that. So there's no like cure for sleep paralysis per se? No, it's mostly, for me at least, a matter of just, I can't sleep on my back. If I fall asleep on my back, it's much more likely to happen. Um, and beyond that, I don't think there's any real uh, way to stop it. There's probably, you know, like treatment or something, or there are ways you can like sort of get out of it or kind of, uh, you know, break the spell once you're in it. But beyond as a matter of just stopping it, no, nothing as far as I know. Is there anything specific about being on your back that, you know, is it an airway issue? Is it the brain has a certain chemical uh, release the body when you're on your back? What's the, the back thing? I don't know, and I don't think anyone really knows. There's just not a lot of research, I think, going into it to try to figure that out. It could be an airway thing because, uh, you know, in that position, uh, there are uh, organs, you know, sort of pressing down on the lungs. So that probably has something to do with it. 
I'm not sure anyone knows really why it triggers it, though, in the first place when you're sleeping on your back as opposed to your side or something like that. But I've read about other people where it does uh, happen to them on their backs as well. Okay. Wow. That's that is terrifying. It's a mystery. Another <laughs> mystery of the brain. Yes. Um, so here's another another thing here. Um, you talk about while we're on the sleep issue or not issue. I mean, we all sleep. Um, but while we're talking about that, you mention an area of the brain called the pons, and that area sends signals to the spinal cord um, that makes chemicals that make your muscles like loosey goosey during sleep, so that you like don't um, do anything crazy. Um, right. You know, is there a chemical that shuts things down, like in other areas? Like, is there a chance that it would shut off like your heart or your lungs? Like, are there any kinds of chemicals that could release? Basically, I'm just trying to ask, you know, could I die in my sleep? Uh, I mean, it's always possible you, you can die in your sleep, but it's not because of your brain uh, shutting down your heart or your lungs. There are certain muscle, or excuse me, I should say what it does is it's stopping certain nerves from working. So it'll stop the nerves that control your limbs, but it's not going to touch the, the nerves that control your heart or your lungs. Okay, okay. That's good because, you know. There's always good healthy fear yes. of, you know. Yeah, it's not gonna, not going to affect those things. <laughs> good, good. Um, so when we triage, you know, with the body, it's it's really built to isolate immediately the areas that are um, in distress. So, you know, if your foot hurts, you know, fix your foot. If your neck hurts, you know, fix the neck. Um, can we carry this practice over to the brain you know, what kinds of theories support the case for brain localization? Because, you know, I'm starting to think it's a lot more complex than I originally thought. Yeah, there's definitely parts of the brain that are specialized in certain things. So parts of the brain that are involved in vision, in hearing, in your other senses, parts that move the rest of your body, parts that are focused on higher level things like reasoning or producing language. So especially for sort of low level functions, there are parts of the brain that are specialized in doing those types of things. Now for any function that's you know, more complicated than just something basic, there are gonna be several different parts of the brain involved. So it's not like there's a tiny little language spot in the brain and all language is produced there. And that's the only spot that does language. So you can talk about brain localization. That's true. You just need to realize that it's an approximation. And when it comes to really high level things, things like, uh, you know, the interplay between language and memory or producing memories, um, free will, consciousness, these types of things, those are brain wide functions. And maybe not every part of the brain is involved, but there's a lot more going on there, drawing on a lot of different things. So localization is a good approximation, but you can't say that it's the only thing going on there. Okay. Yeah, I definitely feel that way with my brain injury because at first I was like, okay, cerebellum, that's my movement. So that was all my movement that got shut off. Um, but now I'm like, oh, but it maybe traveled all the way to this area. Maybe it's not just this and it's a whole bunch of things. So I'm definitely starting to see just how complex it is in there. 
Yeah, there's a lot of feedback loops and a lot of, uh, yeah, feedback loops in other areas. So there's connections between distant parts of the brain where if one part gets injured, it might affect something that you wouldn't even think to connect to that part of the brain. So there's a lot going on sort of beneath the surface there. Yeah. So a lot of your book does deal with crazy injuries. And I think a lot of people would argue that the brain is fragile. You know, it's just like a gooey sack of stuff in this like thick, sharp skull. And like one bonk can cause all these problems. Um, but you also mention that brains are actually quite resilient. Can you tell us a bit more about that? They're resilient. I mean, it, it's sort of an odd mix of they're quite fragile and they're quite resilient. Uh, so it's sort of this uh, the paradox. The resiliency comes about because you can see people who have really bad uh, injuries and it can affect their lives in really dramatic ways. But brains and people are very good about coping with those things or finding ways around a problem. Sometimes that involves some rewiring in the brain, uh, especially with younger people with children. You can see that, you know, they can have sometimes even half of their brain removed if they have severe epilepsy or something like that. And they will grow up fairly normal after that point, even without half a brain, because the brain is very good about rewiring itself. I am absolutely shook. Half your brain? Really, Sam? You can function with half a brain? I thought that was just like an expression. A lot of this has to do with our age and how plastic our brains are. When we're adults, the brain isn't quite as plastic, but neuroscientists are starting to accept that you can see a lot more rewiring than they ever thought possible, even in an adult brain. Uh, there were stories in the book about people, you know, who had injuries to one part and they, you know, had, were having some limb issues. They even sort of paralysis where they couldn't really move things. And they eventually did sort of recover. Uh, people without limbs experience phantom limb pain. That can often uh, go away if you sort of work on, rehabilitate those things. So the brain is resilient in the sense that it has good coping mechanisms. And people are really clever about finding ways around that and finding ways to compensate for their deficits. I just think that's really interesting because when I think of like rewiring, I think of like literally someone going in there and like putting a red wire to a blue wire and like, you know, putting some sparks in there and getting it all patched up. You know, what does it right. actually like, what does it actually look like? If you're missing half a brain, what does that rewiring look like? What it's going to be is that, so it's the, the wiring analogy you mentioned is okay, but it's more like um, if you imagine instead of one wire with one sort of lead at the end, if you imagine something more like a bush that has uh, or a tree branch with thousands of ends on it and and it's sort of connected to another bush. So it's like taking two bushes and smushing them together and you have all these leads that are connected in there. You know, if you grow up, you have certain connections. So certain branches within those two bushes are very closely connected to each other, and they're going to be sending information along one path. If that gets damaged, it, the information's probably gonna go along a different path. So, and brain uh, nerve cells aren't like wires in the sense that with a wire, you're, when you send an electrical pulse down it, the electrical pulse goes down the wire 
and it doesn't really vary in strength at all. Whereas your brain cells, they can turn the volume up and down, so to speak, on uh, how much uh, current is getting through. So your brain cells are a little bit more flexible and they can also sort of redirect where the information is going in a way that a, an electrical wire in a circuit just doesn't have that ability. So it's a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more free flowing, and it's really about information taking different paths within the brain. So in some sense, it's not like it's being rewired in a hardware sense. It's more like the software is changing and redirecting the current along different paths. I loved this new analogy. After all, me and technology don't really get along. So I like the idea of a nice tree branch with different paths the brain can take. This is, however, a bit more complicated than a single wire shooting info down a circuit. Wow, that's that's way, way more complex. <laughs> it's um, more complex, yeah. Um, but it's, it's yeah, it, it's just what the brain has evolved to do. Yeah, you have a lot of fun metaphors in the book about the brain. And I, I love how you can take it in a way that I can definitely picture, like what a Luxembourg-sized versus a Siberia-sized track of neurons is. Like, you know, I'm like, yes, I can totally see, like, the sensory and motor cortex looking like two pieces of parallel bacon. Like, this is a great way to visually talk about the brain. And you also mentioned um, the Persian carpet of the brain metaphor, you know, so it's, it's kind of like a big old rug. Can you go into that metaphor a little bit, too? I think what I was getting at maybe there was the intricate patterns that you see on a Persian rug where, you know, it's not just like stripes going down. But you have a lot of... Um, things weaving in and out of each other, a lot of threads weaving in and out of each other. It's just a very intricate, intricate pattern. And to understand how the brain works, you really have to follow that pattern very, very closely. You can't just take like a superficial look the way you could with like a striped carpet and understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk briefly on uh, the visual field of the brain. Um, one of my biggest symptoms was uh, my vision went sideways and double during my uh, injury. And, like it uh, flipped 90 degrees, you mean? Yeah, it flipped, it flipped 90 degrees, and uh, then oh. it, was, it was double. Mm -hmm. So not as fun as it sounds. I mean, some people are like, oh, that's like <laughs> a cool thing. I'm like, no, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, it might be fun to like, how... try it out for a few minutes, but if, it's, if it sticks like that, yes, that sounds awful. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the visual streams in kind of two, uh, two ways. You've got the where and the what kind of areas. And if you've got a problem mm -hmm. in the where zone, you like run into furniture, which I do all the time, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. Or you can't track moving things. You know, if you've got a problem in the what zone, uh, you end up like not being able to draw a house. Or you can draw it, but then when you see it, you don't even have any idea what that is. Mm -hmm. um, so what about the whole axis, you know, the rotating and the uh, things doubling? Is that in the what or the where? Is there a why? Is there a who? Like, what's going on with the visual fields when you're seeing <laughs> double and sideways? Well, double and sideways. I would, well, I'm trying to think if it's which it would be. It could be even sort of outside of those two streams. Uh, to me, it doesn't sound like so much a what thing because were you having any trouble recognizing objects? Though That's kind of the focus of the what stream is recognizing objects 
and giving them an emotional valence. So that's a new thing or a familiar thing or a scary thing, something like that. Were you having any issues with that? Um, the only thing I couldn't identify was actually a picture of a tripod, like a, like for a camera when they were doing okay. picture activities. That was the only thing I was like, I, I, I know what that is, but I can't actually tell you what that is kind of thing. Okay, so a little bit with there, but not a whole lot. It sounds more like it's probably on the wear stream then, but it might even be sort of more a more of a on a basic level because when it the the site information first gets into your brain, you have to sort of construct a a visual representation of it. So you have to break it down into individual pieces. So you're breaking it down into color. You're breaking it down into edges, things like that. And it's possible something was happening on that really, really basic level where your brain just wasn't quite getting it oriented properly. Or it could be even upstream from there at the very end when it was trying to bring that information uh, sort of into conscious experience and it was somehow getting flipped at that point. So it's hard to say. I'm sure there are tests or something where they could figure out what is going on and where exactly it's getting screwed up. But it could be sort of even beyond the, the wear stream itself. I'd always wondered what my deal was with the word tripod. In rehab, they showed me all these pictures of simple objects. Car, dog, window, cup, bed. But that thingy with the thing sticking out of it? I could not say what that was. It was really interesting getting Sam's take on my vision and perception. It was trippy. Luckily, it's all back. It's all back to uh, how it's supposed to look. But um, okay, that's good to hear. Yeah, I was I was interested by a lot of your stories about um, people and their vision, um, which I think I'll go to that section and talk about some of these stories. Um, it, your stories are so compelling. They're they're people that I like have no idea. I've never heard of them before, but their stories are so interesting. Um, and I think the biggest two, when you start the book, you've got these these two dueling neurosurgeons of the book, um, and they're like pretty much as opposite as you can come. You know, you've got this kind of like mad scientist type, Andreas. Uh, is it Vesalius? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Vesalius, I think. Vesalius, and uh, he's up in here robbing graves to use as cadavers and like smuggling them under his coat at night. Right. Uh, he's like messing with organs between his fingers, which is like creepy. <laughs> and a odd, uh, yeah. yeah, and then you've got uh, Ambroise Paré. Ambroise Paré. Yeah. All right, you have got to read up about these dudes. Sam's about to tell us about the most epic neurosurgeon showdown of all time, Vesalius v. Paré. And do excuse my over-the-top French accent, but seriously, these guys are intense. You've got Vesalius, who wrote On the Fabric of the Human Body, which became the first real illustrated anatomy textbook. In 1539, he also published a nice paper on bloodletting, a super popular medical procedure back in the good old days when they just drain all the blood right out of you. And then you've got Paré, known as a barber surgeon, who was the first to figure out how to cauterize open wounds instead of just throwing a red-hot iron on there. Ambroise Paré. Uh, the royal surgeon of King Henry II of France, who uh, starts trying to run experiments on the brain. They're a bit nicer than, like, throwing boiling oil over wounds, which is great. 
Um, mm -hmm. And these guys end up in the same room doing what you say to be one of the most important autopsies in the history of neuroscience. Um, let's yeah. just talk about that. So basically what happened was the King of France got injured in a jousting accident and got hit in the head, basically, with the, the broken off butt of a, uh, of a lance and was really struggling. And uh, the sort of main doctors that the king had were giving him all sorts of basically ineffectual treatments, you know, giving him ground up bits of mummy and doing all these sort of nonsensical things, whereas um, Vesalius, Vesalius and Paré uh, came in and they were more modern in their outlook. And they were trying to convince everyone else that he probably had an injury to his brain, uh, whereas the other doctors really didn't believe this. And then afterward, they did an autopsy where they were figuring out what parts of his brain were injured. And it's an important case because it was the first time that ever, when anyone ever did an autopsy on someone so important where they actually opened up their head and looked at their brain. That was considered something you would only do to like criminals back then. It was sort of an extra bit of punishment you could wring out of them was to autopsy their body or cut them open. But this really set a precedent that you could do something like that for uh, just regular everyday people or even exalted people like a king. So it was the idea that you should be doing these type, this type of work, an autopsy, to uh, help uh, check your assumptions, understand what's really going on with an injury. And it was the first time, really, that people were looking at a specific injury and trying to correlate that with specific symptoms. So saying, okay, he got injured in this part of the brain. And this part of the brain, he was suffering from these symptoms. So these parts of the brain must have something to do with producing those, uh, those types of symptoms. My God, can you imagine living back in medieval times? Because we didn't understand germs or diseases, we explained illnesses with religion. You could come down with a common cold and be accused of being possessed by the devil. Sam says this new way of thinking was a turning point. So it was important not only for the precedented sense, uh, set uh, sort of medically, but also the general idea of, fo of the brain isn't like one undifferentiated lump, but it has sort of specialized parts inside it. Yeah, I think that that's just fascinating, you know, and um, you've got these like two guys and I like how you set it up too that they're just kind of like, they're a little different in their approaches, but they end up kind of having to come together. They share like a, I think they shared a prize, like a Nobel Peace Prize or something, um, which I thought was interesting. But I want to talk about a specific brain here. I want to talk about uh, Charles Guiteau. Charles Guiteau. Yes, he, he was the, the, uh, the assassin of President James Garfield. Yes, so he is insane. I mean, he's... He's cuckoo for breakfast cereal. You know, he's there's a lot yeah. going on in the story. You talk about this guy. He's fascinating. Um, and you say that the soup in Charles Guiteau's brain never tasted right. You know, when we talk about his brain, when they cut him open, because uh, I believe he was executed, right? He was executed. He got hanged, yes. Yes, he was hung. And then they went ahead and did an autopsy of his brain. And you said the soup in his brain never tasted quite right. Can you elaborate about what you think about that? 
Yeah, so the soup thing is kind of a metaphor in that there was a big debate uh, a little later on about what was really the driving influence for sending signals in the brain. Was it a chemical, uh, or is it chemical, are signals being sent chemically, so that's what the soup side was, or are signals being sent electrically, which is the spark. So the it was called the war of the sparks versus the soups, and that's kind of the metaphor I use in describing how signals get sent, and what might have been wrong with someone's brain. And when they did an autopsy on Guiteau's brain, what was probably going on from a modern perspective was that he was probably having something wrong with the soup, with the chemical messengers inside of his brain. But at the time, they really didn't understand all of that, uh, the intricacies of what was going on neurochemically. And they just sort of looked at the outside of his brain. And because the outside of his brain looked fine, they said, well, you know, his brain must have been fine on a chemical level, too. So here's what you need to know about Guiteau. He was a speechwriter and a failed lawyer. He joined a utopian religious sect in Oneida, New York for a while, and his dad was convinced he was possessed by the devil. He got really into politics and started trying to write speeches for candidates. He thought that if Democrat Horace Greeley won the presidential race in 1872, he'd get appointed as Minister of Chile. Greeley lost against Grant, and so Gateau beat his wife, got with the prostitute, and plagiarized and published a book called The Truth. He spent all his inheritance and was sneaking into hotels without paying. Then he wrote a speech for James Garfield, which was heard a grand total of two times. But somehow, he thought that he should be rewarded with a high position inside the White House. After being told no, for, um, I think, obvious reasons, God told him to kill the president so that Garfield wouldn't destroy the Republican Party. He bought a revolver, found Garfield in a train station, and shot him twice in the head. Do you think he was crazy? I think he was crazy. He almost certainly had schizophrenia. Uh, the delusions of grandeur, thinking that God spoke to him, his breaks with reality. Uh, he was almost a classic uh, case of schizophrenia. So he almost certainly had that. I think one of the biggest moments I had in the book, uh, I was very taken aback. You have all these like really interesting reveals of people. Uh, one of my favorite stories was George Dedlow. And so yeah, that was... this is a fictional story. <laughs> yep. And it was written by none other than Silas Weir Mitchell. Uh, what did you make of this when you found this in your research? This, this tell us a little bit about George Dedlow. Yeah, so he was. This story appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, and they didn't do a good job of uh, sort of making it clear that it was fiction. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but it was a story of a Civil War soldier who, through various mishaps, ended up losing all four of his limbs. I think he maybe lost one at the beginning and then lost another one and had an infection and lost the other two. So he ended up without having uh, any of his limbs. The only good thing about being wounded in the buttocks is the ice cream. That gave me all the ice cream I could eat. And guess what? A good friend of mine was in the bed right next door. Lieutenant Dane, I got you some ice cream. Lieutenant Dane, ice cream. And ended up in this uh, hospital in Philadelphia, basically, where he had to be fed, obviously, had to be carried everywhere. And when the Atlantic ran this story, uh, you know, people were really moved by it because it wasn't long after the Civil War. 
And a lot of them were seeing people, uh, you know, in their hometowns, walking around on crutches, missing limbs, things like that. And he sort of encapsulated all of the awful parts of the Civil War, all the destruction and the waste of human lives and human potential that we saw during the Civil War. And he became almost a national focal point for that. And people started sending in donations, thousands and thousands of dollars collectively to the hospital in Philadelphia where he was supposedly staying. And it turned out that, as, as you said, it was a fictional story. This guy did not exist. It was a story written by a doctor, uh, Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell, who just happened to have treated a lot of Civil War patients who had lost limbs and were experiencing what uh, later be called phantom limb. Here's the crazy thing. Sam says about 60 to 80 percent of people with amputated limbs report strange and often painful sensations in their missing parts. This can happen even with extraction of teeth and eyes. I saw a video online of a cat with one arm pawing at kitty litter with its non-existent arm. Aww. Thought I'd try out my sea legs. Well, you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dane. Yes, I know that. Uh, I talk about in the book a little bit how the bullets, especially during the Civil War, were a different type of bullet than had really been used before and for various reasons caused a lot more amputations. And Mitchell and other doctors started seeing phantom limbs as a symptom in a lot of people for the very first time. So medically, they started to be able to really understand what was going on with phantom limbs and neurologically why this might be taking place. So the story was a little bit about how, you know, the Civil War caused this because of changes in the weapons they were using and how this fictional story ended up being uh, and leading to a really big medical breakthrough. There's also a moment where he like has a seance and like summons his limbs and he like feels them walking and like feels them hurting. Like, yeah, how is that possible that you don't have a limb, but you're like, oh, my arm. Like he even has a moment in the hospital where he's like, oh, my foot hurts. And the, the doctor's like, you don't have a foot. Like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah, that was right when he woke up. He didn't realize he didn't have a foot at that point. And that was sort of the uh, the big reveal. And the orderly said, no, I, you don't actually have a foot. So, yeah, in the story that he wrote, there was sort of this seance at the end where he ends up, uh, you know, rising up on his phantom limbs and walking a little bit. And Mitchell, I think, actually meant that sort of satirically because uh, spiritualism was sort of running rampant in the country then. So I think that was more of a joke on his part and almost... A, a way to signal that it was a fictional story, uh, except right. I think a lot of people missed that subtlety in there and thought that was real as well. Um, but anyway, neurologically, it's possible because pain is not a, it's not something that's inherent in the limbs itself. Pain is something that is produced inside the brain. So the limb uh, might not be there, but pain can still be going on because pain is produced inside the brain. And in some cases, you know, if people are missing half their limb, they might have nerve stumps or something that get a little inflamed, that get irritated. And so signals might still be traveling up those nerves, but uh, the brain is really the part that produces pain. So that is why you're able to feel pain, even if the limb itself is gone. Wow, that's 
that's like really unfortunate for people that are experiencing that because is there any like cure for that well in the past decade and decade and a half or so they have found a few ways where they can actually reduce that pain uh one thing that they can do it's a very very simple um uh, exercise actually it's called mirror therapy or mirror box therapy what they do basically is let's say you're missing your right arm you set up a mirror so that it, you use your left arm and then you base, let's say your right arm, you know, you want to open your fist and close your fist over and over. What you do is you do start doing that action with your left arm and you look in the mirror in such a way that it appears that your left arm is really your right arm. And that sort of tricks your visual system into saying, okay, I can move this arm and I'm not feeling any pain in this arm when I'm doing these movements. And it helps sort of break that cycle of pain that's going on inside the brain. This reminded me of our lovely guest, Dr. David Schneider from episode three, Perception. I kept thinking about all those parlor tricks that the brain plays on us that we don't even know about. Also, I still really wish I had a parlor. But I guess this closet in Brooklyn's gonna have to do. Here's some more hot takes on mirrors. You know, just like a little bit of, a little bit of street magic. Trick yourself into thinking yeah, that exactly. you actually have a hand. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Um, and the, the reason why that works actually is because uh, another component of this is that the, there's kind of a mismatch again. Because if you see you don't have an arm, uh, it sends some weird signals to the brain that uh, won't allow the brain to really reconcile the fact that you're missing an arm. But the visual system is very powerful and it's kind of overpowering. And if you can sort of trick yourself with a mirror into seeing that you have this limb, supposedly, and that you're moving it and it's not, you know, like clenched into place or something like that, the visual system is so powerful, we kind of override the other signal. So that's kind of what's going on there. Right, right. So again, back to vision. You know, um, one of the things that, you know, if you see it, you believe it. we rely on vision quite a bit to get through our day to day, which leads me to talking about uh, Lieutenant James Holman. Um, Lieutenant James Holman's a pretty interesting guy in your book. Uh, he was a renowned world traveler. He was kidnapped by the Tsar of Siberia, deported as a spy, climbing Mount Vesuvius, mid-eruption, you know, charging into live war zones. Um, Quite the ladies' man, you say. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about his eyes? Yeah, so he probably, uh, in addition to all those adventures that you mentioned, he probably, at the time, set basically a world record for travel. He probably traveled more than any human being ever had up to that point. And he did it all while he was completely blind. Which is really incredible to think about that someone would be that adventurous and that successful navigating the world when they were blind. And he, he did it basically with a cane. So I'm sure we've all seen, you know, people with vision trouble today using a cane sort of as an extended arm to kind of feel their way around. James Holman did something a little different in that he would take his cane and he would strike it on the ground and produce these uh, sharp noises. And then he was actually able to listen to the echoes 
and uh, sort of figure out where things were situated around him based on the reflections and the echoes. Sound familiar? Yeah. This is what bats do. It's called echolocation. Try it. Close your eyes and knock stuff around your apartment. Send out sonar signals that hear the echoes and then they can navigate the world. He wasn't using sonar, obviously, but the same basic thing was going on uh, with James Holman. That's how he was navigating the world with sound. And based on some people today who can do something similar, what they think would probably was happening was that his brain was actually kind of rewiring itself and the visual parts of his brain uh, weren't being used for vision, obviously. They got repurposed and were actually being taken over by the auditory, the sound parts of his brain, and used for navigating and processing with sound. So it's a really incredible story, not only of him overcoming these difficulties, but a really dramatic example probably of how the brain was able to rewire and change itself in adulthood, because Holman wasn't blind his whole life. He could see until his early 20s and had to uh, sort of change his brain after that point in his life. And so, and also kind of like not just rewiring, as we said, but maybe like rebranching, you know, developing those branches in different ways now, using what would have been his visual center and now kind of doing a new branch, you know. Yeah, so basically the information was getting sent along different paths than it had been before and then, you know, being reprocessed and, uh, yeah, processed in a different way based on the fact that it was going down these different paths. Yeah, that's – when I read that, I was like, all right, well, I got I to gotta do something with my life. This guy's <laughs> really intense. <laughs> they so, are a little intimidating, these stories sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um and, you know, I've been waiting all week to talk to you about Kuru, Sam. Uh, now, this story is likely not for the faint of heart or stomach. Kuru is a very curious disease that was found in the 1950s among the tribe's people of Papua New Guinea with some very curious symptoms. They ate brains sometimes as a part of their cultural practice. Um, one of the craziest symptoms you kind of open that chapter with is, is this laughter that they just are laughing uh, deliriously, and and they die. And then this disease is spread all over um, these tribes. Can you break down this disease for us? You know, what's going on with these people's noodles? Yeah, so this was a prion disease. Uh, it's similar, if people have ever heard of uh, mad cow disease, it's kind of a similar disease to that in that it's a disease that affects the brain uh, basically, there are these little uh, misfolded proteins in there that end up damaging various parts of the brain. And they called it the laughing disease for a while because people would sort of uh, burst out laughing for no reason. It's not clear why they did that. Maybe they sort of lost their inhibitions or maybe something else was going on in their brain. But one symptom of it was they would break out laughing uh, in strange, inappropriate moments, sometimes even just random moments. And they discovered eventually what was happening was that they were spreading it through ritual cannibalism. Now, if you're listening to this podcast in a Western society, this probably sounds like the craziest thing you've ever heard. But listen, some cultures be like that. 
It was a religious practice to cook your relatives after they died. And the more important and close you were to them, the better bits of their body you'd get to eat. But don't pass the fork and knife just yet. There were some issues with these things called prions. And unfortunately, uh, unlike microbes like, you know, bacteria or amoeba or something like that, those will die when you cook them usually. But prions, because they're not really alive, they're just these misshapen proteins, they often don't uh, get destroyed by heat and they don't get destroyed by digestion either. So when these people were eating their loved ones, essentially, as part of this religious ritual of sort of like regrowth and rebirth and things like that, when they were doing that, these prions would survive digestion, end up inside their body, eventually end up in their brain, and it would kill them. And of course, when one person died of this disease, the other family members would go would eat that person, and they would all get the disease too. So it ended up spreading uh, fairly rapidly through this uh, these few tribes in Papua New Guinea. And it took a long time before they really understood what was going on and were able to map all of this out. And there was the scientist who went in there who basically mapped all it out and figured it out, ended up winning a Nobel Prize for the work that he did. That just goes to show like that science and, and neuroscience discovery, not only is it like dangerous for whoever's like going in and trying to research these things, um, but it, it costs a lot of lives. You know, it's, it's kind of sad when you think about it, all the stories that you have about, you know, well, this person, you know, they had to. They had to die for us to go in there and see what happened. Um, or like all the pigs and frogs and cats that have lost their lives to science. Do you think there will ever come a time when we no longer need information from death to discover life-saving scientific discoveries? Don't think so. I think it's a an important part of neuroscience and it's an established part of neuroscience. And I think that these case studies are going to continue to be important. And it's, it is really unfortunate. That's uh, kind of a theme of the book is these people who end up suffering an injury or something end up inadvertently kind of sacrificing their lives for neuroscience. And that's really how we've made most of the major discoveries that we've been able to in neuroscience was through these stories of people's injuries in a lot of cases, but sometimes through their recoveries as well and how they got over these uh, what could have been really devastating injuries. Okay, this might be a little presumptuous of me, but I really hope my brain surgeon had fun tooling around in there and also found a cure for something. Keep up the good work, Dr. Crawford. Keep up the good work. Now, of course, have things uh, like fMRI where we can look inside the brain. We have other tools we can use to look inside the brain. But these case studies are still vital for understanding how the brain works, because in a lot of cases, you know, an MRI, that's kind of an artificial situation where you're in the lab and, you know, you're just flashing pictures in front of somebody's eyes. We need, in a lot of cases, to understand how people actually uh, deal with injuries or other situations in the real world. And unfortunately, injuries are often the best way to get that information. Do you think uh, you'll donate your body to science after you die? I think so. I, I think I would. I don't know if I will have anything in particular to, uh, you know, knock on wood. I hope I don't have you know, some sort of uh, incredible brain injury where it really affects my lives or changes it. But if nothing else, you know, like uh, for medical students or a body in another way, yeah, I think that's what I would like to do. I definitely am curious to see where the field of, of neuroscience goes, you know, now that we're 
developing all these crazy things. Um, I have another question too. And um, I think there's a real problem with sexism in science. Uh, and, and you definitely touched on that with your story of the Civil War doctor, Silas Weir Mitchell. Uh, he made a lot of discoveries about phantom limbs and sleep paralysis. And he was even called the most versatile American since Benjamin Franklin. So that's pretty cool. Um, the men he treated, you mentioned, they, you know, he'd send them on weeks in the West. They'd go and rope some cattle. You know, one of those people was Teddy Roosevelt, you know, who felt cured by this. Um, but the women, you describe a different kind of treatment for women that he worked with. Uh, he often told women to stay in bed and stop making trouble. Uh, he told Virginia Woolf and others to stop writing and doing their arts. When a woman refused to get out of bed, he tried to take his pants off and get in bed with her. Uh, and then he set another woman's sheets on fire. He set another woman's sheets on fire. So, I mean, I, I couldn't believe this. This is just, it's crazy. We got to talk about this real quick. You know, um, do you think there is still a difference today in how men and women are treated in the neuro field? I, I, I definitely think there is. I think that it's a, it's just a reflection of the society. So it's not that Mitchell was uniquely awful in this respect. He was just reflecting the values of the society at the time. And I think we often want to think about scientists as heroes and hopefully being above those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, they're people and they are reflecting the values of society at the time. And yeah, I do think that those sort of attitudes uh, have, uh, you know, been handed down and are probably still pervasive today. And you see it in a lot of cases, I think there are studies out there where they talk about uh, you know, uh, basically identical symptoms in men and women and how uh, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists end up uh, treating them in different ways. And sometimes even, you know, female psychologists and psychiatrists end up treating males and females in different ways, sometimes being more patronizing to the women, uh, poo-pooing it or, you know, insisting that they have bed rest or things like that. So, yeah. How'd that bed rest work out for me? Female doctor who shall not be named who told me I should just crawl back into bed? Definitely improved. I don't want to say that, you know, uh, people are still lighting sheets on fire or, you know, uh, doing the kind of things Mitchell was doing. But those biases still exist. And, and I found a lot of the stories um, reflected that as well. You know, a lot of these stories are like kings and presidents and important people that you know were treated for their um cases do you have any memorable stories of the women that you found in your research one that comes to the top of my head is the woman who um her, her vision center was skewed and so she was kind of seeing things in these snapshots almost like polaroids were taken um do you have any other stories that you can think of that were stories of women or people of you know um diversity yeah, one of the uh, uh, really incredible stories in there was the story of the surgeon named Wilder Penfield, and he actually did surgery on his sister um, while his sister was awake. Uh, I don't know if people realize it, but in brain surgery, often the patient is awake. Now, I was not awake during my surgery, but I did wake up thinking I had woken up mid-surgery. I was like, oh my God, am I dead? And the nurse was like, nah. 
you good. I was not awake for my brain surgery, and I'm really happy I wasn't because I can't imagine. It depends a little bit on the surgery, you know, if it's, uh, yeah, there are some you can and some obviously you can't. You are interacting. That story of him doing the, um, the surgery on his sister was, was really, really incredible. Although I would have imagined probably cracking some jokes to my surgeon because that's just kind of who I am. <laughs> so what's next on your hit list? You know, you've written about some really fascinating aspects of science. Um, Caesar's Last Breath just came out last year. You know, what do we have to look forward to here, Sam? You know, you got a book five, book six. Can you give us any teasers for where to catch your writing? Yeah, uh, I write for a lot of different places. I uh, had a, a fourth book come out last summer, and I will probably have a new book be coming out in uh, the summer of 2019. And it's going to be focused on physics, sort of. I was a physics undergraduate. Uh, that was my major and haven't really written about physics. So I'm going to be writing a book about uh, kind of an offshoot of the Manhattan Project. Basically, during that project, there were a lot of American scientists, especially the ones who were refugees from Germany, who were convinced that uh, Germany was far ahead of us in nuclear bomb research. So Germany had a bunch of Nobel Prize winners there. They had the best industry in the world. Uh, fission, atomic fission had been discovered there. And they were convinced that these scientists in Germany were going to build an atomic bomb and give it to Hitler. And he was going to use it to destroy Paris and destroy London, maybe even destroy New York. So they got worried. They got panicked. And basically, uh, the Manhattan Project decided to send in this team of scientific commandos into Europe, about half military, half scientific. And they went undercover in Europe to spy on the German atomic bomb program, to sabotage a bunch of their installations and places where they were producing material. They were sending assassins in at various points to try to take out the German scientists. So it's kind of about this mission that they were on to disrupt and destroy the Nazi atomic bomb project. So that's what the book's about. Oh, wow. I cannot wait for that. I, I love that research and that's, that's great i'm so excited <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a lot of fun and there's some there's some really great characters in there too there's you know an ex-major league baseball player who turned into a spy um john f kennedy's older brother joseph kennedy jr actually died on a mission that was peripherally related to this project so there's a lot of really uh interesting characters in there as well great well we absolutely look forward to it um, we can also catch you in the Atlantic. You have some pieces that you run there frequently. Um, and you also do some, you do some radio lab stuff. Um, so we'll, we'll be sure to, um, keep up with your writing and, um, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I hope you had fun talking about your awesome stories and we can't see, we can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Today's episode of Mimi and the Brain was produced and written by yours truly, with sound mixing by Jordan Gosparé, music by Lucas Murray Music, artwork by Joy Spengler, and equipment by Gotham Sound. If you like my science podcast with a comedic twist, feel free to support my campaign on Patreon and subscribe to my channel wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you gooey brains later. Um, should we do the end now? Yeah, it's my personal best. Can't do any better than that.